Across the Margin, the podcast. My name is Michael Shields, and today I am thrilled to share with you a conversation I had with an extremely talented writer, one I've been a fan of and reading for some time, Jesse Jarno. Jesse writes for many publications, from Rolling Stone to Pitchfork to Wired to Relics and beyond. And the books he has released are all deeply insightful and excellent reads. He put out Big Day Coming. Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock in 2012. And in 2016, he released The Excellent Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. His latest book is entitled, Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America. And this outstanding book is the focus of today's episode. Wasn't That a Time isn't simply a comprehensive telling of the untold story of the Weavers, the profoundly influential folk pop quartet who rose to fame in the 50s, but it also serves as a deep dive into the history of folk music in America and into the uncertain time period of American history that was the 1950s and 60s, a time period that we can draw many parallels to today's divisive America. In this episode, Jesse and I talk about what made the Weavers so special. We discuss the amount of research he did to bring this wonderful book to life, We talk about protest music in general and the power of music and art to not only fight oppression, but to bring people together. I have no no doubt you will enjoy this interview. And do yourself a favor and grab this book. It's so, so good. So before we dive in, just a reminder that uh, Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Osiris is a family of podcasts. That connects you with podcasts, videos, and live experiences about artists and topics you love. Check out OsirisPod.com and get in the loop. And uh, and while you're there, at OsirisPod.com, um, sign up for the newsletter. They'll send you updates about new podcasts, new events, um, and everything they got going on over there. And uh, Jesse Jarno, who I do speak with in this episode, he does have a podcast on Osiris. It is called Alternate Roots, and um, at the end of our discussion... Uh, we talk about that some as well, so stay tuned for that. And uh, let's dig in. Here is my conversation with Jesse Jarno. Awesome. Thank you, Jesse, for uh, uh, having me here to your home, especially. <laughs> and a uh, huge fan of your work, your previous books, and um, your work at Rolling Stone, everything you do. It's really, I'm always reading your stuff. But uh, uh, this book we're here to talk about today... Um, wasn't that a time it floored me so bravo congrats and thanks thank for having me in once again my pleasure and thank you so much I'm, I'm really glad you dug it yeah it's so cool um so I just want to start and uh just to ask simply why the weavers what uh <laughs> what what led you to uh do this deep dive well they were my favorite band when I was a kid they were what got played in my house yeah. that was um 
you know, my mom was a folky, and my dad, my dad was a folky. They, okay. they, my dad, you know, was at was at all the big Newport folk festivals in the early '60s. Saw Dylan go electric. Yep. Oh wow, he was um, there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And my, you know, my mom, my mom. I'm pretty sure I actually saw the Weavers. Definitely saw a lot of those folky acts. And her her parents especially were um, old school progressives. Like were involved in the Henry Wallace campaign in 1948 okay. and the Adelaide Stevenson book, campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really like lefties. Yeah. You know. So in that sense, the Weavers were like the traditional music of my household in wow. some way. In that it was like I was being raised in this progressive tradition or something yeah. like that. But. That wasn't, like, beat over my head in any sense. It yep. wasn't like, this is, you know, this is the political music <laughs> that, you know, is going to inform your worldview. It was more just, like, I fell in love with their harmonies and yeah. their singing. Sound and, yep. Kind and of the soundtrack of your youth. In yeah. And Pete yeah. Seeger's solo records, too. But the Weavers mm-hmm. um, were my first favorite band. They were the yeah. first band where I can name all four members of the we- all four members of the band and just knew a little, you know, I didn't know their detailed history mm-hmm. like I do now, but yeah. I knew... Some of it, um, and that was that was just exciting for me to have that new thing. Like, oh, there's this thing called bands, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. So after I wrote my last book, I was just you know it came out in um, the spring of 2016. Was the rise of indie rock? Oh, no, or heads. Heads, 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 was the, heads, heads was after that. Okay. Yeah, heads Sorry came out that. in 2016, yep. and I was just you know getting back into freelancing mm-hmm. and thinking about what I wanted to do next. Um, and I did start thinking about other book topics and running in my head through music that I loved that there was no full-length book about. The mm-hmm. Weavers came up and it yeah. occurred to me. And I, you know, revisited them a little bit and casually mentioned it to my editor, who didn't actually seem that interested in it at the time. And I was like, oh, okay. And I sort of, you know, got got on with my life. And then the 2016 election happened. Mm. And all of a sudden, like, literally within weeks, blacklists are back in the news yep. And, you know, people getting slurred for being globalists mm-hmm. or just this whole, just uh, this polarization happened that probably like a lot of people, you know, I knew the country was pretty deeply polarized, yep. but I didn't realize exactly the how extent, deeply extent, polarized. Yeah. Yep. Same here. And suddenly the Weavers just seemed like, oh, yeah, that's way more topical now. And, and I revisited it with my editor and he's like, oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> well, that's exactly where I was going. I was kind of curious uh because there are profound parallels yeah. to what is happening in America now, and I didn't know if it influenced oh, your angle oh, or extremely. influenced your perspectives <laughs> yeah, or just kind of fueled your fire, and you just answered it right there, which is really, yeah. really cool. And it's just, you know, it's wild. You get to see uh, with how much has changed, how much has stayed the same, too, which is right. pretty daunting. And for me, you know, again, that, that was definitely my thought when I started was, oh, wow, there are all these parallels. Mm-hmm. But then sort of going into it and getting deep into it, it's like, yeah, that there are things that are, you know, you see kind of these mirrors but to me, it's almost more of a continuity in some way, because you see, like, the beginnings of these conversations that are still happening mm-hmm. now about, you know, music and cultural appropriation and, mm-hmm. you know, blacklists and yep. politics. But you also see, like, literally some of the same characters, like Roy Cohn, who yeah. is, you know, an influent, you know, obviously the mentor to... to, to yeah. He who shall not be named. Yep. And, um, yeah, and Angels, Angels in America. I just I saw that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, um, he's around that. Yep. And all of these institutions and things like that. You know, America First was yeah. this big idea that the conservatives were really, you know, throwing around mm-hmm. at that point. Um, and all of them, all, all of these ideas that you know, it's not necessarily parallels. They just sort of continued, maybe 
some ideas were, you know, not so ascendant over the last half yeah. century. Now they are more than half century. Now they are again, which is terrifying. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's, it, there's a, there's a through line. And I think that I wanted to pull that out as well. That yeah. it wasn't just like, Oh, here's this thing that happened many, many years ago. Yeah. And look at all the similarities. It's like, no, this is the same thing. Yeah. These are the same. The people same, have been fighting the good fight for the, some time. Yeah, the now. same it, forces, the same yep. organizations, the same causes. It's just the same thing. Yeah, and it's just an earlier part of the narrative of this sort of arc that's gone up and down over since. I mean, you can trace it back way further than that. Sure. You could probably trace it to you know, you know, anti-slavery versus slavery in the war, or in, in the Civil War, or you know, even further back. But it's yeah, it's sort of kind of tracing American progressive radicalism. Yeah, absolutely. So communism and the government's crackdown on uh, on it lies at the center of this book. And, you know, the blacklist is mentioned even in just the subtitle. Uh, I believe there's some confusion now what communism meant to someone like Pete Seeger. And I was wondering if you can elaborate oh, on yeah. that a little bit. I mean, so American communism was extremely different from Russian communism. Yes. And Pete... And, I think that gets lost a little that bit. That does sometimes. get lost. And, and, and part of the reason that gets lost, and, and for good reason, is that, you know, Pete Seeger was, in some sense, a Stalinist in, yes. in the contemporary sense mm-hmm. of the word, the contemporary meaning, his his contemporary yep. sense of the word, which is that he, you know, he had his eye on the Russian experiment, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call that, which, of course, turned out to not be successful. Yeah. Hindsight out, kind of screwed him on that one a little yeah, bit. Yeah, <laughs> turned turned out to be... You know, Stalin turned out to be this brutal, awful, mm-hmm. horrible, yep. horrible, horrible, one of the worst, you know, dictators in the history of yep. the world. But that doesn't mean the notion of communism and the notions of communism and socialism are bunk because yep. this one evil person did it badly. Yeah. Um, but that's it. So what Pete, what, what American communism was in that part of the century was this, you know, force on the far left that was really attempting to affect change through democracy. Yeah. You know, it wasn't attempting violent overthrow of the government. It mm-hmm. wasn't that. It was basically trying to push what became the ideas of FDR's New Deal um, kind of deeper into sort of the fabric of American society. Mm-hmm. You know, so before the New Deal, it was sort of, you know, it was it was what became sort of FDR's New Deal in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. But then, you know, for the in the years after World War II, it was really trying to, like, keep those ideas going, that the government could be and should be, you know, um, a force to, 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 to make everybody equal, to, yeah. to, to create equality in society. Yeah, there's, um, a, there's a quote you pulled from uh, Jackie Robinson, just how any idea that was just progressive, they were deeming communist. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of blanketed that, in that way. And that's really one of the ways that this era is, that era, the 40s and the 50s, is similar to now. Yes, exactly. which is that it's Plans just draw that yeah exactly yeah. things just get sort of blurred. Yeah. Um, they're smearing with uh, words that, yeah. that kind of just don't mean exactly what they're right exactly. And, and, yeah, I need to ask before we go too much further the level of research and kind of the process <laughs> and what goes on in here. This book, I mean, not only does it uh, you know cover the weavers, it covers the history of folk music and yeah. and, and the. Just the American history of the time. It's deep. What, uh, how long, <laughs> when did you start this? How, tell I me mean, a little bit about the process if you could. I mean, yeah. I, I guess I started it really officially, like right a few weeks after the 2016 election. Okay. So probably the beginning of December 2016 is when, when did I. Pete Seeker die? Was that? He died in 2013, I think. Okay. Or 14. I think Some, Fred was the last one yeah, alive fr- in 16. Yeah, okay. you know, he passed away really not long before. 
like I kind of began to revisit okay. the project. Yeah. And Ronnie um, passed away. Uh, Ronnie Gilbert passed just away like a, that, just right? like a year before that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry to interrupt. So you know, I knew a pretty decent framework for the history of folk music in this country. I'm you know I'm a music fan and a yes. music writer. Yeah. Um, but really, my 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 own knowledge of folk music kind of begins kind of in the sixties, or it did. It kind of began in the six. Besides knowing kind of my sort of my general image of the Weavers, um, my you know my history of my detailed history of folk music probably begins with Bob Dylan arriving mm-hmm. in New York. You know, mm-hmm. I knew a little bit of what happened before yeah, that. It shows up in the book later. On. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it shows up in like the last chapter, yeah, basically. Cool. So this is sort of a you know prequel yeah, style. The Beatles so, are showing up at the end. Yeah, it's real neat. Yeah, and I. That's another thing that I wanted to sort of connect it up to kind of what we think of as the beginnings yeah. of, of contemporary music. Yeah. But um Yeah, and how they influenced that those beginnings, yeah. But um but research wise, so yeah, no, one of the very first things I did was, you know, just kind of track down like these the histories of, of folk music mm-hmm. from before the sixties and kind of create a framework for my understanding of that for what the Communist Party was and how folk music fit into that. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, that was part of the idea all along, is that the weavers and the members of the weavers tell the story of folk music, mm. in that they were there, you know, kind of from the moment that it kind of, this this notion of, of you know, people in the city playing folk music, of this, you know, of, of contemporary people sort of um, diving into music that was seemingly, you know, hundreds of years old. Yeah. And, and that idea of taking this very old music and using it for modern purposes... Mm-hmm. That's one of the conversations that really begins with Pete Seeger yeah. and really begins with Lee Hayes, who is his, his the co-founder yeah. of the Weavers. Um, so that was the first step, is just sort mm-hmm. of giving myself yeah. like a framework just for the background just the yeah. background, yeah. start taking notes, start making chronologies mm-hmm. of like, you know, what when the various Pete Seeger's various earlier, you know, projects existed. Mm-hmm. And once I kind of had that framework was when I started feeling comfortable like going deeper because you know I wanted to have this background for when I started going through archives and papers yeah. and things where if I found a document I could know what it meant as yeah. opposed to just like oh here's this thing that looks kind of interesting this, and would, going back and forth yeah right exactly. so it would be like oh I know where this falls into the story mm-hmm. so the next step was kind of um going through publicly accessible documents oops um which oh thank you um Included, like, the Daily Worker, which was the, mm-hmm. the communist newspaper yeah. in New York City uh, during the 40s um, and the early 50s. And going through Pete Seeger's FBI file, which is... Um, wow. Did you get a look? Yeah. Well, it's on archive.org. Okay. Uh, so there's it's 10,000, somewhere between, like, ten and 20,000 pages. It all sort of blurs together <laughs> after 10,000 pages. Yeah. But that was, you know, that was a solid few weeks. Like, mm-hmm. basically just reading through this many thousands of pages. Yep. And taking notes and trying to, like, just, you know, frame all that stuff. Um, Unfortunately, the requests that I put in for uh, the other Weaver's FBI Mm. files, um, Fred's, I believe, was destroyed in some flood. Mm. Lee's is 
uh, and Lee's and Ronnie's, I think, still do exist. But the thing is, even if I had put in my requests on, like, the day that my editor said, yes, we're doing this book, like, I still wouldn't have them back right okay, now. So I still haven't gotten my, I still haven't gotten their files back. Mm-hmm. I'm still, mm-hmm. like, at some, some random day. <laughs> and, like, I imagine it to be, like, in the next Manila, two years from now. Like, shows up at the door. Or, yeah. Well, the, Ronnie's is, like, apparently, like, 10,000 pages or something. Like, it's, like, a lot. And... I sometimes FBI files are cross referenced, yeah. so if there's like um one, you know I don't think this is gonna be what it is, but sometimes it's like, oh, if Pete Seeger is mentioned in somebody's file, then like a good chunk of his file will then be duplicated and oh, made and redundant. And so my yeah. so anyway, it's hard yeah. to know. Um so those were all the things that were publicly accessible. Mm-hmm. And then it was, you know, start hunting for things that aren't publicly accessible. Mm-hmm. Um Two of the Weaver's kids are around and very were very helpful. Uh, Caleb Hellerman, who's, mm-hmm. who's um, Fred Hellerman's son, uh, turned out to be a dead fan and a fan oh, of Yola Tango, nice. and, <laughs> and you know he's a few years older than me, but we have we have a lot in common. Yeah. So that was he was totally you know he had he had actually already read both of my previous books, which yeah. kind of blew my mind. Yeah, uh, so he was totally on board yep. uh, with like you know I went up to where uh, he grew up in Connecticut, yeah. where where. Fred lived, um, and went through their attic and found, you know, all of Fred's, like, letters from the, um, so cool. the Coast Guard, yep. and, like, a journal. That was the coolest thing I was going to ask if you caught some journals, because okay, I mean, so the coolest real thing, deep insight. That so the coolest thing that we like found from that. Yeah. there was a journal that Fred kept, I'm guessing it was probably, he probably knew the Weavers were going to be signed at that mm-hmm. point. It was, like, from the, it was from, like... Late 1949, might have even been like early 1950. There were, you know, there's no date on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my sense is that he was like trying to write things down because he knew that this was now going to be a thing that yep. he was going to be involved with for a while. And that was pretty amazing because it's like his pre fame, pre blacklist, pre everything insights into kind of the Weavers, um, just the Weavers dynamics, which is, you know, it's all kinds of stuff in yeah. there. You know, a lot of really. Um, evocative personal stuff about Lee Hayes, who's a really, you know, he's a pretty complex, troubled guy. Yeah. He was he was an alcoholic. He was, you know, it's hard to say this definitively, you know, when he when he died, I have, you know, so many years ago. Um, but he was probably gay. He he grew up in the deep, deep, deep South yeah. in the early part of the yeah, century. His past, uh... his father was a minister, mm-hmm. um, and you know, he never had any. Um, relationships he's basically asexual mm-hmm. um that was sort of how people tended to describe him yep. but it, it things get complicated that was yeah. that was sort of what i found out is that you you, you don't see those things in, in <laughs> even in the letters you, you, those are kinds of things yeah. that are sort of like um you know you kind of have to talk to people about that because that was just something that didn't really get written down yep. sort of people's thoughts or mm-hmm. whatever so i mean that was so i was trying to be very sensitive to that kind sure. of like looking around these documents um anyway so some of those things are in um fred's journal yeah and then the big the really oh and then um uh ronnie's daughter lisa mm-hmm. is is around she lives in california mm-hmm. and ronnie's papers are incredible ronnie was an amazing archivist she kept all of her letters and kept them i don't know if she kept them organized but they are she Later in her life, maybe she organized mm-hmm. them, and they're all really well organized now. It's like That's 1940s business papers, you know, Weaver's correspondence, you know. And I spent it three days at, at Lisa's house mm-hmm. just going through, not, I mean, not all of them, because, yeah, yeah. like, I, I kind of had to stop after the Weavers broke up, mm-hmm. but just going into all these letters and, like, just 
oh my god, wow. just you know, daily detail. Yeah. Um, I'll come back to those in in a second. And sure. then the last big piece of sort of um, non-public research is this uh, collector named Barry Ullman, who is he's kind of the world's biggest Woody Guthrie paper collector. Mm-hmm. Like collects like letters and journals and has a bunch of Weaver stuff as well. And I um, I visited with him, and he had. He had, so he had a lot of Woody Guthrie letters, which were amazing to see, but it was that was definitely like a sort of a side warm yeah, hole. Exactly. I was like, I can't get sucked into Woody <laughs> yeah. World. So there was Woody there, book real fast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, then there there's certainly no shortage of those. But there was yeah. one Woody letter um, from 1950 that mentions the Weavers that mm-hmm. I did get to quote in the book. Okay. Um, the main thing that Barry had was he was he knew Fred as well, Fred Hellerman. And acquired a bunch of papers and stuff from Fred, um, probably in the 90s, would be my guess, um, contracts and, le- and letters. And the main thing that he had that was just exploded my brain open was this tour journal that Fred kept on the first Weaver's tour, which was uh, 1951, mm-hmm. um, like January to June 1951, I think was the tour and basically the journal, where he kept almost day by day, like, really detailed, like, just, you know, here's where we stayed, here's who we partied with after the show, here's what we did on our off days, and it was just like, I I can't, I would just, if I had, like, that for every Weavers concert, it would just be, like, it would be too much, probably. Yeah, it would turn into an anthology real quick. Right, but at, at the same time, it was just, like, there was so much in there that, like, I couldn't, I couldn't even use all the good stuff unless... Like the book would have been so that that chapter on that, on tour, that tour would have been like disproportionately <laughs> enormous, yeah. but so but the main thing that I p- pulled out of those journals was this it was really a missing piece um, mm-hmm. that I'd found references to elsewhere. There's like a, a passing reference to this in the in 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 the um, Dunaway Pete Seeger biography. There's a passing reference to this in Eric Darling's memoir, which is this incident. Where Pete Seeger smashed a banjo, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, reading those things in in the, his biography, it's like really like a couple of sentences, and it's got, you know, Pete Seeger was a he was a storyteller, you mm-hmm. know, and and a lot of times I think he would boil stories down to their morals, and you know, and and sort of look for the, um, you know, just look look for the moral, look for the look for the lesson, look for mm-hmm. the whatever. So this is one of those stories that when he told it. He boiled it down to this one sentence, like, oh, we were backstage somewhere, and the other weavers, they're like, hey, Pete, you should have a drink with us, and I was like, no, I don't drink, and they're like, no, have a drink, and I said, really, I don't drink, and I got up and I smashed my banjo through a table, and that's how serious I was about not drinking, and that's sort of how he presented that story later on, which is not totally untrue, that's, it is, so... I found the missing pieces to this story in Ronnie's papers and Fred's journal. Um, uh, Fred in his journal tells it blow by blow. Mm -hmm. He probably written within like the hour of it happening, like back in the hotel room, just like it's pages and pages of like, then this happened. And then Pete got up and smashed. It happened during like a backstage jam session. um, And, you know, this happened and then, Pete ran out of room, and then Toshi, his wife, ran after him, and then Ronnie. It's it's it's, it's everything. It's yeah. just like, oh my god, I can't believe how detailed well. this is. And then I found that 
I don't remember exactly what order this was in. Maybe, maybe Lisa told me about this in advance because I was, I was, I sort of knew this was something I was trying to find more details about. Mm-hmm. But then there's a letter in Ronnie's papers. Um, there's no date on it, and there's no mention of any banjo smash or any specifics about this incident. But it's her. It's a resignation letter from the band. It's an unsent resignation mm. letter. And it's probably like ten or twelve pages, and it's it's all handwritten on hotel station. There was multiple unsent letters. Oh, there, oh, right? yeah, she yeah, would, yeah. She would write out her. Uh, so the, they were all letter letter writers. Yeah. This was the 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 fifties, yep. and they're all extremely literate people. Yeah. And a lot of the times they weren't living in you know after mm-hmm. the the initial years of the Weavers, they were all living in different places. So letter writing became this form of, you know, it not became this form of communication. How, it was just their medium. That's how it was, Lee aired a lot of his grievances. Right, you know, in front of a typewriter, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, anyway, but all these, this this Ronnie letter, mm-hmm. and there's no context for it other than the hotel stationery. That's, like, mm-hmm. the only thing that's, like, you can pin it on. And, and sort of finding these pieces, like, oh, that's definitely what she's writing about here. And it's, and it was it was just, like, all of a sudden I had this, this story kind of that had, up, like, yeah. This one intense, cathartic, important part of Weaver's history, yeah. where it had different, basically all the different voices in the story, different perspectives, and able to piece together it. this story. Yeah, and you know, it was, it, it it's a bummer that I didn't get to interview any of the Weaver. I mean, I I, I interviewed Pete, um, maybe two thousand. Oh, did you? When did I interview Pete? Yeah, two thousand. Six two thousand five somewhere yep. a lot for relics actually yeah. hilariously yeah. about technology uh-huh. and changing copyright it was you know it was a fine interview it wasn't it wasn't that long yep. he sort of said the things I expected him to say he gave me the quotes that I needed yeah. but then after we finished talking and doing the interview we just kept talking about other stuff he was mm-hmm. really just curious just about stuff and that was like yeah I got my I got my Pete Seeger there like yeah, he. I don't even remember what the term was, how we got to start talking about Brazil. I, I think I was really into Bra- I was really into Brazilian music mm-hmm. at the time. Started talking about public transportation systems in Brazil and uh, Gilberto Gil, who is who is a great dissident uh, Brazilian musician from the '60s, who had been jailed in the '60s. Mm-hmm. At that point, had just been made the minister of culture mm-hmm. in Brazil. It was kind of this, you know, sort of liberal liberal moment there. Before the current, <laughs> things have done changed. Things, things have sure changed. Yeah, right. Um, but he came up, and and I I don't I don't know yeah. why Pete had this thought. He's like, oh, could you connect me to him or something? And it's like I don't know I don't know Gilberto <laughs> Show. Who do you think I am? Well, but then I realized, okay, I I knew only very casually because I'd interviewed him and emailed with him, John Perry Barlow, who's the great lead, yeah, who's a and was extremely good wow. friends with with Gilberto Show. Um, <laughs> he knew John knew everybody. Yeah, he really did. And so I wrote him an email. And I'm like, "Well, I just interviewed Pete Seeger, and he wants to get in touch. How how should he do that?" Wow. And Barlow, he's like, "Okay, well, here's." I guess here's Pete it. was right asking the right man. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, so cool. apparently. And like, I you know, he sent me back like, "Oh, here's his home number. Here's his office number. Here's his address." And I, Pete didn't have email, so I yeah. put that in a letter, sent yeah. it off to Pete. Um, and we, Pete and I, sent postcards. I have a couple. There's. 
and I say, I'll guardian. Yeah, there's a postcard from Pete. No way. <laughs> um, oh, he's thanking you for the address of Good Luck Yeah, 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 see, right? <laughs> oh, he, drew, he draws not, the banjo. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, he saw, yeah, yeah, he signed that and all of them. Wasn't so. there one where he, he, saw, he drew a picture of the banjo in the book? Um, with, like, shackles on yeah, it? With, yeah, yeah, we yeah, with shackles yeah, on it, yeah. Yeah, he, you know, the banjo, signing letters with, with the banjo was kind of his little doodle yep. thing. Like, he obviously, you know, you can see on this, he just, yeah. he just knew how That's to do it. That's when he was having a problem with commercialism, right? Yeah, yes. there's, a, there's a bunch of different, you see different variants. There's one with the banjo snapped in half. There's one with the ball and chain on it. Um, Anyway, I interviewed Jill a few years later, Mm -hmm. and I asked him about it. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Pete, Pete, Seager definitely got got in touch with me. So I was like, I I, I consider that one of my life achievements, was was connecting Brazilian and American political dissidents. Nice. I didn't expect to come up on that in this discussion. That's so cool. (laughs) What a cool aside. Um, So, yeah, that was, those were some of my... um, yeah, I, I wish I could have spoken to the other weavers because yeah. there's so many questions I could have. Harold Leventhal, I, I, their I, I, I almost wouldn't have been surprised if you had when I asked that question because just because of how thorough everything is. Yeah, I mean, they were just, reads. you know, I mean, Lee died in 1981, yeah. so obviously couldn't talk to him. Mm-hmm. He, you know, oh, so yeah, his record, I forgot to mention that, his letters are all in the Smithsonian. Oh, wow. And all digitized. Oh, cool. Um, so that was another. I'd love to get my hands on some of those. Yeah, those are, you He's know, you can see those. You can, soul. can see those on, um, on the Smithsonian, on the. Uh, well, I don't know if it's down for the shutdown right mm-hmm. now, but the, uh, the Smithsonian folk, is it the, the, the Ralph Rinsler archives mm-hmm. are, are online. So all of these letters are scanned in. They're not searchable. Uh, you have to kind of like go through the files okay. and, and look at them. Um, but that was, that was amazing too. Yeah. But man, I, I, there's so many, I, I wish I could have hung out with all four of yeah. them. Oddly, Pete is maybe the exception to this in some ways, but the other three of them really all seem like like modern people in mm. some ways. Like they would be totally just totally with every they contemporary got, political conversation. Yeah. Maybe they wouldn't be up on technology or something like that, mm-hmm. but like just their souls and just something yeah. about their attitudes is so modern and so just accepting of in some ways of, of things that yeah. I feel like it would have been even though they were, you know, decades older than me, I feel like I it wouldn't have been hard to, to speak with them. Yeah, cool, cool. Hey, so I want to kind of get into the music a little bit mm, and sure. just kind of the the inception of the Weavers and everything. I, and, and um, I mean, you started in on the Weavers real early just from <laughs> right. your parents, but uh, I mean, something attracted to you at that point early on. But what did you? What would you say makes the Weavers' music so special? Because it is special. I mean, who it influenced is amazing. I mean, we'll to me, there. I guess there would be two things that I would point to. One is a few musical factors that are sort of entwined. Their harmonies, you know, are kind that's, of the big thing. That's that was the first what, thing I, that I wrote down about. That, was, their har- yeah. that was what grabbed me mm-hmm. when I was little. Was I think just, that's what was grabbing everyone. Anytime someone was would be talking about them, they'd just be like, the, 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 I've never heard anything the way yeah, they harmonized. Yeah, Right, and it was just, there's, there was just an enthusiasm to it and an energy to it, and the fact that they could, they could you know, they could sing... But only Ronnie was really a trained voice. The, the others were sort of, you know, folk singers. Mm-hmm. But they just had a blend that they were really able to sing together in this way that just, when when their voices stacked together, there was just this energy that pushed through. And I, I've made this comparison a bunch when talking about this, but um, in some ways, there is kind of like a Beatles thing mm-hmm. there in the sense that, like, the Beatles have these amazing harmonies and they stack together and they're singing, like, you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, don't want to get too many yes there. Um, but there's, a, you know, there's also kind of, like, a bigger 
message behind that or a bigger energy behind yeah. that where there is something with the Beatles anyway sort of generational words the harmonies but there's something there's a, there's something being pushed through the harmonies yeah. that you're kind of hearing in between that and the Weavers are the same where there's these harmonies but there's kind of this bigger thing that like there's a you know fighting harmonies I don't know what you want to call them yeah. there, there was like just this radical energy mm-hmm. to, to them that I think does come through and the other part of the Weavers that made them special, and I think, you know, the harmonies definitely accentuated this, was their choice of repertoire. Mm. Nobody was doing what the Weavers did um, in in the early 1950s, really, until they started doing it, which was looking around the world for music and looking yeah. for influences in different countries and looking for mainly looking for songs mm-hmm. from anywhere, as mm-hmm. long as the songs were good. And, you know, you kind of look at the songs that the Weavers had top 10 hits or top 20 hits with, and there's a lot of them. They, you know, yeah, they were, were really... Raging up the charts. I can, you know, and that's something that is fascinating to me, is that they were an enormous pop band, and people just kind of forget that. Because yeah. this was, for a few reasons, but mainly because it was the 1950s, and mm-hmm. who really remembers pop music from the 50s? Yeah. But they were, you know, they were a charting act, and this, the songs that they were bringing into the charts were, you know... Uh, Senna, 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 which is, you know, Senna, Senna, Senna from Israel. Mm-hmm. They were bringing Wem Away from South Africa. Mm-hmm. They were bringing uh, Goodnight Irene, which is an American folk song, you know, by Lead Belly, which they learned on the Lower East mm-hmm. Side. So that's, you know, that's sort of, yeah, comparably speaking, local to them. Yep. Um, and they're, you know, they're singing, um, like, you know, Sloop John Beef, or I guess it was the Wreck of the John B at that point, mm-hmm. which was from the Bahamas. So they're pulling music from around the world, which is not what pop musicians did at that point. Yeah, which is also remarkable that they were, you know, making into the charge and did get signed yeah. eventually. Because I guess there's that one uh, Decca, is this, I'm not yeah, De- right? yeah. Decca uh, executive who's like, "How are we? These guys are singing Hebrew music. How, right, how is exactly. this going to work?" So right. it, that makes it even more special. Right. I, think, I think one more thing that I would add to the, your, your two points you added that you touch on is also that the music is communal. It was kind of like, especially when they were playing live, and they were a live band, as you right. alluded to, which yeah. is so cool. A lot of the music I know we both love that we can kind of point to the same thing. you, you got to go see them live. But th- it wasn't that they were just singing to the people. It was a sing-along. Yeah. And well, that's exciting. So jumping jumping forward a bit, um, I you know, I talked to the last chapter of the book. I really wanted to like trace the connections of the Weavers to the present moment, mm-hmm. or to the beginnings of what we think of the contemporary music. And I knew the Beach Boys, for example, had been influenced by the Weavers. Mm-hmm. You know, they did Sloop John B, which they learned from the Kingston Trio, yep. which the Kingston Trio learned from the Weavers. I knew, like, David Crosby was a Weavers fan. The one that I didn't know, person I didn't know was a Weavers fan, was Jerry Garcia. Yeah. Which was, you know... So did you not come upon that recording of him singing oh, that, at time? That was, that was, like, way at the end of the process. That was, oh, okay. Well, that was, yeah. like, really, like, in the... So the last phases of the process... Um, and this will actually... This will segue right back to what we were talking about yeah. a second ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but right near the end of the writing, uh, that before the Dead box set came out, that has, you know, all of Jerry... Not all of, but a lot of Garcia's recordings from before he was in the dead, like all of his, his folk projects and his bluegrass stuff. And the earliest one on there is uh, a tape of him playing at a party with Robert Hunter, um, a birthday party for Jerry's then girlfriend. Uh, you can hear some, you can see, hear some of that in the long strange trip documentary. Mm-hmm. And on the on the recording, someone makes a joke about the weavers. And I, uh, 
got in touch with the producer of the box, one of the producers of the box set who I know, who connected me with Bridget, and she's like, oh yeah, you, you just let him hear the whole thing. So I got to hear the whole tape. And when you hear the whole tape, the majority of the songs on that recording of Jerry and Hunter, you know, Jerry's 18, I think Hunter's maybe 19, mm-hmm. um, the majority of the songs came from the Weavers. If not directly, um, then they're songs that yeah. the Weavers sort of brought into into the world, into the contemporary mm-hmm you know, repertoire. Um, and I, you know, I talked to Bridget and she was like, Oh yeah, we loved the Weavers. Um, and there, you know, there were a lot of things they loved about the Weavers. The thing that, that made me think of it just now, but she was, she said that the Weavers were for them, the group that made, made it clear that, you know, there was a difference between going to see a concert and sitting as a passive as member a of the audience yeah, and going to see a concert where you're a participant and there's yeah. kind of this open loop between the stage and the mm-hmm. audience and when you're going to the concert you're sort of entering into the milieu of the yeah. concert and like you know you're meeting other like-minded people yep. from kind of that world and it's just ob- to me it's you know obvious that there's parallels between that that world yeah. and kind of what but the dead cool to see the genesis or when someone kind of figured out that this was something a thing, that could yeah. Be, yeah, a thing. yeah and you know the weavers in some way you know they're like i said they're my favorite group when i was a kid and in some ways they are kids music mm-hmm. it's pop music it's they're not singing radical political songs they're singing songs with great harmonies and great choruses and at least during their early years when they were on the singles all this you know on the hit parade, all these songs had huge string arrangements and whatever. Mm-hmm. It's pop music. Yep. So it's not that surprising that Garcia, you know, je- not jettison the Weavers, but sort of it's, you know, you, you don't see them coming through. It's hard. You don't necessarily see the Weavers coming through that much further into his career yeah. after that. Like, yeah. he, you know, there's some songs that he would sing that you could sort of trace back, but for the most part, the Weavers seemed like they were kind of, like a base level for him, like mm-hmm. a beginning. He had just gotten out of the army. He was just learning how to play guitar. Yeah. And the Weavers were kind of like the core of the folk repertoire. You yeah. know, a song like, you know, basic would be the word we, we mm-hmm. would use now, you know, on top of old Smokey or, yeah. or you yeah. know, these, these songs that are just like so common that almost like who cares about them now? Because like who cares about on top of old Smokey? But yeah. that was, that was a hit for the Weavers. Yeah. You know, someone had to bring that into, into, into the pop consciousness. Absolutely. Um, Yes. Yeah. So uh, we got to talk about protest music. So because mm-hmm. I mean, as much as it was pop music, as you were just saying, um, Pete believed deeply in the power of, uh, of music to for change, and and you know we see it kind of you know protests and social commentary and music often now, mm-hmm. whether it's reggae, hip hop, and beyond. But uh, um, you know they kind of brought this to the foreground a little bit. I mean, I'm sure it was it was in jazz and a lot of other yeah. um, you know music outside of a pop and rock, but they, they were on the foundation of this. Is that right? Did yeah. You know? Well, it was, it's complicated. They, they, yeah. they I mean, they That's absolutely, asking, they absolutely, they absolutely were. Um, yeah. the Weavers, you can trace the Weavers family tree back to this group called the Almanac Singers, which mm-hmm. was Pete Seeger and uh, Lee, and Lee Hayes and Woody Guthrie yeah. and, you know, and uh, other musicians. Mm-hmm. But th- those are sort of the three that are, I guess, relevant to the Weavers story. Um, you know, they lived communally in New York in the 40s, and they were basically singing the headlines. They were, Pete was a Communist Party member, Woody was an extremely committed Communist mm-hmm. uh, Party member, and they were singing topical songs based on the party line at the time, which got really complicated as, as World War II ramped <laughs> yeah. up and, and all these alliances between Russia and Germany and the United States were shifting around, and that got them into a lot of trouble. 
and they had to scrap their repertoire. Yeah. They had all these songs that they were singing that were newspaper headlines. Mm-hmm. They were just they just couldn't do them anymore. Yeah. And that they got red baited and basically an early, basically blacklisted. The almanac singers more or less had to had to shut it down for that reason. Yeah, yeah or the, you know they kind of went. Back underground, there was a moment at the beginning of World War II where they were being featured on like armed services radio and and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but that all sort of disappeared after World War II. Uh, Pete Pete was in the army, you know, Woody was in the Merchant Marine, and then briefly in the army. Um, after World War II, they kind of get get back to New York and sort of reassess. Um. And they form an organization called People's Songs. That was that was Pete's big dream. Yeah. Was this big um, thing that was bigger than you know individual musicians or bands? It was yeah, a, would you call it a collective? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, a, it, was it, it was a company, an organization, yeah. or something like yeah. that. A, yeah, collective, yeah. totally. Where the idea was, they would be keeping track of all of these songs. Like, if you needed a union song, yeah. or you needed... You How know, many people's songs are there? Like, I mean, because you, you, as you're going through, when you put a song... Oh, I put the numbers. Songs, numbers yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I the, mean, or just there, whereabouts. There's probably, a, like, 300 of them yeah. or something. You know, they lasted from, what, 19... They lasted right until the beginning of the Weavers, so, like, 46 yep. to the end of 48, maybe? Yeah. 40, yeah, they, added, they lasted until right after the Henry Wallace campaign, which yeah. is right at the beginning of the Weavers. Yep. Um... So people song also committed to singing all these topical yep. songs, singing about you know like that like there was a special songbook and so they put out a, a you know news, newsletter every mm-hmm. month or two that had all the newest songs. You know it would be like the you know the Office of Price Administration, which was like a, a New Deal thing to keep prices balanced mm-hmm. during the war, was being um, dismantled, and they had a whole special emergency section of songs that could you know just for singing to, to keep the OPA open. Um, but that sort of dried up is not dried up, but became problematic yeah. as well. Um, the, the the peak of people's songs was nineteen forty eight. Probably they were involved in in um, Henry Wallace's uh, third party candidacy mm-hmm. for president in nineteen forty eight. Yeah, he had been all in on that one. Yeah, yeah, he had been FDR's vice president. Mm-hmm. Um, for I don't remember which term, maybe the first two terms, and then got jettisoned by FDR because he was actually too left wing, mm-hmm. too progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so he becomes this presidential candidate, and they throw you know he's basically the, the Bernie of the time or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, and they go like you said, they go all in on it. They're writing songs for it, and but this is also the period when like the the, the loyalty oaths are starting in yeah. and um. You know, communists are being arrested on mm-hmm. Smith Act charges. The Smith mm-hmm. Act um, basically equated: if you were a communist, you were automatically you were automatically assumed that you wanted to violently overthrow yeah. the government, and therefore basically made communism illegal. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff is going down, and people's there's kind of an attrition rate in people songs where it's like you know, it just doesn't quite you know people are sort of moving away from it clearly like the the left is not the place to be at this point <laughs> it becomes dangerous yeah it really it, really, it, it did absolutely um physically there's, there, there, there's, there's, there's there, a lot of bravery in those moments in you know, the summer you know, this is a little bit after people songs but summer of 1949 one of the very what well, the weavers didn't sing at it but they were supposed to mm-hmm. um there's you know this event in Peekskill New York which turned into a race riot yeah. basically that's where, wild very where, cinematic chapter that's 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 nice. intense yeah that um Paul Robeson, the great um, 
black opera singer. It's great um, how much Paul is in this too. Yeah, that he was, was great to learn more about Paul. I, he I, I, was a figure that I only knew I knew about because my grandma, who who passed away last year, uh, swooned about him whenever they, he came up. She was, should, she yep. was, she was, you know, she still. Yeah. She saw him once at a party, and she, like clearly. Like whenever I, her her heart she turned into a little teenage girl whenever whenever Paul Robeson well, he came up. He seemed like an amazing human being. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so yeah, they got you know he sang at this event in upstate mm-hmm. New York, and they got or not upstate but Peekskill, and they got literally stoned. They had yeah. rocks thrown at them by by locals, yeah, and the police were just literally standing by. Yeah. yeah. So really, not a good situation yeah. for what you would call a pro- protest singers. Mm-hmm. So the Weavers grew out of that, yeah. and they were a very conscious attempt to, they wanted to sing, they wanted their music to, I, I can't remember, they, they wanted it to be for the people of Peekskill. They wanted, mm-hmm. that was for who the they wanted. For the people who were throwing, throwing the Throwing the stones. Yep. They wanted to reach that exactly. audience with their music. And he still believed in the power of music in that way. Yeah. He's like, I don't need to kind of be as topical. The music's going to get through. I right. need to get it into their homes. So, I need to get them yeah. to hear it. Yeah. So the idea was that they were going to be singing these sort of, Timeless songs that didn't have overt political content. It wasn't, you know, they were singing about this cause or the other. But there was this clearly this bigger curriculum behind them, this bigger message behind them. Where when you are singing songs, like I said, from the Bahamas, from you know, from South Africa, from apartheid era South Africa, from Israel, the new country of Israel, um, from from the American South, from from all these places. There was a bigger message that you sure. convey with 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 that repertoire, and yeah. that, in a sense, the Weavers weren't protest singers because they weren't protesting like you know direct direct causes like that. I, I I've been thinking of them as like organizing the singers. It's like organizing yeah. music. It's like you know this music brings people together around the songs and around the melodies and around these ideas. And then once you're together, that's sort of when the real thing sure. happens. And it's not necessarily like, and so for me, you know, there, there's obviously great protest songs, but I guess I do sometimes think about protest music as almost a reductive way to think about the value of music and social mm. justice and social action, mm-hmm. which is to say that, you know, I, I, I think it's, it, it oversimplifies it to say that you can have a song and that, the song, you, if enough people sing this song, it'll affect change on this cause. It's like the sort of thinking about action. music as like yeah. a catapult or a slingshot yeah. or like a very like single direction weapon, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like yeah. that. Whereas to me, music, the the real like longer value of music in terms of social organizing is as this thing that connects people yeah. and brings them together in a way that demonstrates their shared values yep. and is a way for people to access that. Like a and, larger culture war type of thing. Yeah, yeah. and connect with that. Yeah. So that's Eye where... in a way they might not even understand. And yeah. Communal and, and... So the Weaver's music was dangerous, but not in necessarily the way that... That the almanac and things before yeah. protest music can be. Yeah, not yeah. even necessarily the way that like the government was framing it as okay. dangerous. Yep. It wasn't like... You're being indoctrinated with specific messages mm-hmm. to overthrow the government. Yeah. It was like that is the way they were framing it. They were saying yeah. there was Aesopian language in there that yeah. was that was that was you know telling people even when they were singing to children that to, to that they were to overthrow the government. And it's it's yeah, 
and it's that's not what the message that's, that's was. That's not yeah, what the, was going on. The, 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 you know, the, me- the message was equality. The message yeah. was peace. The message was yeah. you know all this kind of hippie stuff. Yeah, all kind of beautiful stuff. Yeah. What well, I thought and you were kind of alluding to it there was. Um, you know, a lot of the music they would have, it would be topical at first and actually just like basically singing the headlines and such. But what was really unique to me was how non-precious they were with the, oh, the yeah. lyrics and how they would change them. Also with folk music too is how uh, just, this is kind of me just coming to grips with understanding mm-hmm. folk music through your book, but how they would all, you know, kind of cover each other. And they're just all playing these same songs and like they're all like different versions are going up the charts at the same time. Yeah. Folk music is a peculiar beast. Right. No, for sure. And that was that was something that was fascinating to to think about was that you know, folk music, I guess, is often thought of as this, you know, very traditional thing. Like you're trying to preserve this this thing that happened hundreds of years ago in the same you know, this music and this is how it was authentically performed by the people who wrote it. And the members of the Weavers were interested in tracing the sources of these songs. Like, oh, yeah, this song originated in Arkansas in the 1920s and, and that kind of stuff. But they were more inter- more interested in, like, adapting it for current use yeah. and, and sort of seeing what it could be in, in the present sense. Um, and that's, you know, that's really that's part of protest music, but that's part of pop music as well is, is kind of you know, adapting things and making them, making them contemporary. Um, and yeah, no, you're right. There was, there was, there was virtually zero preciousness about it. There was a sense of taste and a sense of aesthetics Mm -hmm. and a sense of, you know, what sounded good and what sounded, what was, um, you know, cheesy or what was, you know, chintzy. And, you know, to be fair, they, they did cross into that when they got into the pop world. Um, Begrudgingly but, at points too. Yeah, they, oh, they, very. They were very, struggling with that. That's, they, that's a, another fun thing about this book is seeing how how much they struggled with commercialism and, yeah. and, and just kind of getting into the pop scene to uh, try to make a living. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's it is very blurry this idea of of what folk music yeah. is um, and what and was to the Weavers yeah. in, in, in that era. And protest music. I'm curious. Do you feel that Pete? Who he just seemed like the most idealistic. Am I right about that? Of all of them, yeah. Uh, yeah Unquestioned. Did he? Uh, did he become? And he believed so much in the power of music. Do you feel he became jaded later on with the power of music, or was he always? Uh, did he remain idealistic and believe in that power of the music to change things? You know, it's hard for me to answer that definitively, only because I never really knew the guy. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, and my my impression is that he was actually kind of a hard person to know. That's and he, that, that's I something tried, that you mentioned multiple times. Yeah, tried to convey that a little bit. That he so they were he was really his enthusiastic. Wife, his wife knew him. Like, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. He was yeah. really enthusiastic and really positive and and just this force for things, but was also had a hard time connecting to people emotionally. Yep. So, to answer that question, publicly, I publicly, yes, Pete was definitely had not lost a single iota of his belief in the power Amazing. of music by the end of his life. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were moments where cynicism came out about it, or he had regrets about it, or you know, in his darker moments, probably you know, was questioning things. But no, but Pete Seeger, until you know, how he, he lived to be 98 or something. Yeah. Role. He, you know, he was. The last time I saw him play live was at a was um, at an anti-war march in two thousand three, I guess, mm-hmm. run up to the Gulf War. And you know, his voice was gone. He was really leading the crowd. 
you know, I could only, I couldn't even really hear him, but I could see him, you know, I was, it was, you know, he was a tiny figure, yeah. like, 10, 12 blocks away, you know, it was this huge anti-war march, and I could see him, like, waving his arms, and, you know, I could hear him scratching through the PA, and it was, it was his energy, and his yeah. energy definitely survived. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the reason I, I just find him so inspiring, I mean, yeah. he was, it was, I think he was at Occupy, or at least... Yo, like, oh, yeah, yeah, he I was, mean, that's... That's remarkable. That they, means the entire time through the fifties, through the forties, yeah, all the way through our current times, and, he was there, yeah, fighting, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, there he, he's not, yeah, you, know, uh, you know, Harry Belafonte is another person that I, yeah, I, he's someone I wish I could have talked to for this. Yep. He, he was, he's not as accessible these days, and I think he's, I'm not sure how he's doing, but um, yeah, but he's another figure, very much like Pete Seeger, who is who who's been completely engaged for, you know. Just well, more time. than half a century yeah. at this point. It's yeah. like that. It's that is inspiring. It's like wow, that is like life commitment. You are a lifer. You're like, in. You're, it's, it's, it shows what you really believe in. It shows yeah. that he was truly passionate. Um, kind of an aside. Am I right that you throw a couple like pop culture references of your own in on your writings? I see like a, a Lebowski thing. Oh, there's in probably there. a Lebowski. Which <laughs> one? Do you, what, what do you think? There's one of? point where it's like oh, uh, that's like your opinion. Is, <laughs> yeah, is, is, is that or yeah, I probably. I, I think there's some, a couple gems in there. I saw. Yeah, there's this. there's yes, good eye. <laughs> there and, there are a few. There's probably even a few that aren't even overt. Mm-hmm. References okay. to things just that are dug just, into your language or your yeah. Language. I mean that's that one is that would definitely yeah. be over. But there are things that I there, I would have to go back and look. But I'm I'm sure there are things that are in all of my books that yeah. are Easter eggs that wouldn't even read as a reference to something unless you were me and you yeah. know it's like it's sometimes I'm just imitating the rhythm of something sure. or referencing. But yes, there's yeah, definitely there's, big Lebowski yeah, references. Yeah, in there. there's cool stuff in there. Um, <laughs> in another question, a lot of Twin uh, Peaks too. Uh, oh, is there? Mm-hmm. Oh, I almost <laughs> want to read it with that in mind. Um, yeah, th- their influence was just way more than I, I even just even imagined. I, you know, Bruce Springsteen ended up putting out some uh, an album, Peace right. Work, right? Yeah, um, no Weavers on there, though, I don't think. No Weavers. Um, and, you know, I mean, Peter, Paul, and Mary was a big thing. Yeah. You mentioned and they, Mary met one of the artists, one of the other... Yeah, she met Peter Peter Yarrow at, um, at one... At the, at, I think it was the first Carnegie Hall show, yeah, or one in, of the Carnegie yeah, Hall shows. Yeah, in, in, in uh, the reunion show in uh, the end of 1956. That, yeah. was where, that was where... That's where I think your book is so kind of, I mean, important in a way, is just because... The Weavers, I don't think, were given the credit that they do for these influences yeah. are vast. Yeah, Joan Baez, I mean, just yeah, down I mean, the list, it's and, crazy. And a lot of it, I think, is that the '60s happened, you know, and Bob Dylan happened, mm-hmm. which was this complete realignment of what folk music was. Yeah. So, the Weavers were a folk pop band, mm-hmm. right? They were, they were cleaning these songs up to make to get them on the radio. They yeah. were putting on string arrangements. Mm-hmm. They're that was their goal, and they weren't trying to play this sort of hard-edged, authentic, you know, quote-unquote, authentic folk music. The notion of that, of that, of being, you know, sort of out-of-tune banjos and sort of rough harmonies, that kind of began into scent in, like, after the Weavers started. You know, the, uh, the Anthology of American Folk Music came out in 1952. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Lost City Ramblers are another important part of that. They sort of came around in the later 50s. And at that point, folk music sort of starts to split almost into two parts, where you've got kind of the folk pop yep. part of it, and you've got kind of this raw-edged, uh, what do they call it, like neo, neo-ethnic, I guess was one way they would, um, that was one of the buzz phrases for mm-hmm. it in that era. And Bob Dylan definitely fell into the neo-ethnic camp, despite yeah. the fact that he became this enormous pop artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 
mode of folk music really overtook the the in in terms of the hardcore folk scene kind of overtook the weavers approach to folk music in the 1960s and in that way when bob dylan went electric um in some ways kind of wiped the weavers out of people's minds like okay. uh, you know that's you know that that's sort of the dylan goes electric moment but to me that is only part of the story that's you know that that takes in some ways that takes the weavers out of the dialogue of 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 folk music mm-hmm. But at that same moment, when Dylan goes electric, you kind of have this new blooming of pop music and rock music that's not rock and it's not folk, but is this thing that to me really clearly derives from what the Weavers were doing. And a lot of it's super cheesy, but like you hear, you know, all this music from the 60s and and 70s and stuff that's, you know, folk pop. That's, uh, I'm trying to think of what like, you know, a, a great example of that would be. Um, you know, even things like maybe like Judy Collins or something yeah. like that, or, or probably even eventually, you know, stuff like Joni Mitchell, mm-hmm. where it's not, yeah. you are, you're not trying to channel this like raw, hard folk edge. You're trying to create music that's pleasing. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the, the Weavers created that dialogue of like trying to create music that's both like authentic to the self, but also... You know, pop accessible, and, and, yeah, accessible, yeah, exactly. Absolutely, uh, made me think a lot when I was reading the book, just because you know I'm going through the history of uh, folk music, really, and just how much the this is also a book that contains so much American history. Yeah. And I just kept thinking about the idea that you could also you could look at the history of American music as uh, just how it like crosses into the history of America. Yeah, and just how music, you know, can define what's going on in the times and what it, the story it's telling. And it's wild. Yeah, I mean, I guess this this does bring it back to to, to Pete Seeger. I'm trying to look where that oh yeah, the postcard. Mm-hmm. So um, this post so this postcard that he sent me uh, it says how to build a global how to build global community on the front, and it's this list of you know 20 items, and right at the top of the list is um, a couple items. Imagine imagine other cultures through their poetry and novels. Listen to music you don't understand. Dance to it. And there's you know there's a lot and there's a lot of really good stuff here. You know, notice the workings of power and privilege in your culture. This is a great card. But reading those so woke. You, <laughs> so, well, exactly right. Yeah, so, so, but reading so this card, honest. where I kind of it's like, oh yeah, that was how the Weavers were exactly how I. Mm-hmm got my interest in, in listening to music from all different places and, and difference. They really define, for me, even without knowing it, the idea that you should listen to lots of different stuff. Yep. But and it, but it wasn't even really, I don't know when it was. Maybe it was listening, maybe it was this card. It was probably around the time I was listening to, to uh, Gilberto Gil and, and Brazilian mm-hmm. music. But the idea that you can understand um, countries and the history of the world through the music of of those countries. And to me, that became a way and is a way of understanding other cultures in kind of this like level playing field sort of way. It's like to me, I feel like because of who I am, and and I assume a lot of people that I know and friends of mine, it's a lot easier to understand a country through their through their recordings than it is through trying to understand like, you know, their parliamentary politics yeah. or, or, or these kind of like other issues. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like if you discover a country's musicians, 
and then you discover their music and go into their music, you see what their their concerns yep. are and like what their what their political concerns are, what yeah. their economic concerns are, what yeah. their are you know aesthetic yeah, artistic could, yeah, concerns I, are. I could say you could almost take the the idea of just music and just say their art. And see, yeah, you exactly. Find out the art of a culture. You could really learn so much. And that was like a really eye opening thing for me was was knowing that that oh, that's like there are people and it, you know and I I have to assume this is true. That there are people like me and like you yes. in, you know, music fans creates, in these other countries. It creates connection. It creates empathy. You see yeah. them as people, just like you said, right. like you. And it's like, that's, in understanding another country, it's like, that's the part of another country's history that I want to connect to. It's like, what are, what are the equivalents? What of, are the like minds? What yeah, are what are, what are, who are the heads, basically? Yeah, yeah who are the heads? What are, what are they listening to? What yeah, are they into? Yeah, what do exactly. they teach me about what's going on and in it, their world? Right, like the people who I assume are, or, yeah, no, it. it's, it's like, I love it. who, who is aligned somewhat like me yeah. in that, in that culture? And what are they thinking? What are they fighting against? And then like, like to me, with? yeah, and like once you understand that, it's like the whole, it's not like the whole culture comes into view around that, but. You know, I know a lot more about Brazilian history and Brazilian politics because I got into Brazilian totally. music. Yeah, um, and the Weavers for me were where that notion began, and where where I probably indirectly learned to do that. Amazing, and maybe consciously. Learned, I don't know. That's it's, awesome. it's hard. It's hard to figure out where exactly when and where all yeah. these ideas started for me. But but that's but that's yeah, they're pretty entwined with those things. Well, I love this book. It's uh, I mean, so there's really there's so much. Discussed. I mean, cultural appropriation is addressed. The rise of, of I mean, I, they even talk about um, uh, LSD therapy. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, God, I forgot. Yeah. Famed actor Alan Arkin plays a huge role. Um, the rise of the LP. Just the uh, yeah. you know, just like kind of live music. All this is in there, and uh, and at the heart of it, you know, sings the idea that the world can change through a song. So it's really, really great work. I love Thanks. talking about this book. Uh, I couldn't recommend it more to people. And, um, and a lot of it was really just. An attempt to be optimistic in the face of just awful stuff awesome. that was happening, like combating this nonsense with, with art and, yeah, and, and or perspective. Just, yeah, exactly. Just sort of like having this thing to connect with, and yeah. like so. One of the starting points, the second starting point for the book, when I revisited the Weavers after the election, mm-hmm. there's so there's a great documentary also called "Wasn't That a Time." It's kind of an yeah, irresistible I, title, I, but I, it was it, shot. I'm, it's high on my to do list right now. To shot, watch after I read filmed. This. Uh, they re, they reunite. The Weavers reunited in 1980 mm-hmm. um, for a couple of shows at Carnegie Hall. It was made into this great film. Um, it's actually really hard to see right now, but it is on YouTube. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. It is on YouTube, it's, but you can't. I don't think it's on. I don't think you can get it through Netflix okay. or anything like that. Yep. Um, I mean, definitely can't get it through Netflix. Yeah. but I don't think you can even buy like a new copy on DVD or anything. Um, but so. They they reunited in 1980, and the concerts happened to be at the end of November 1980, which is three weeks after the 1980 presidential election, mm-hmm. which is, you know, really this turn back into yeah. conservatism after, um, you know, more or less decades of, of liberalism, yeah. you know, you, you know, give or take, give or take Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Lee Hayes says something during that film that... Um, which is that, you know, you know, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. I've had kidney stones and I should know. Yeah. And it was just like, <laughs> yes, thank you. And it was like this really like sweet, uh, touching, it was just like all of the things I wanted at once that made me, it made me feel a little yeah. bit better. 
it made me it connected me to Lee and the Weavers and yeah. sort of the fact that there were these arcs in American yeah. culture like that. And it was just sort of this, you know, it was it was, like like, it was solidarity, yeah. you know. Yeah, I like this idea because there's a lot of days when when you pick up the paper and you're seeing some pretty rough stuff that you do not think this may pass. But it's good to have these long form perspectives, yeah. see people fighting against similar stuff, and 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 then get, getting that hope that yeah. this this too shall pass. Yeah, exactly. Uh, before we go, can we can you tell us just a little bit about alternate routes? Oh, just, sure. Yeah. I, lo- I love I love that Thanks, podcast. Yeah. Anytime a new one comes up. I, uh, I'm, I'm a runner. I like to run, and I oh. just throw it on, and it's my oh, first great. thing I do. I oh, just that's love awesome. it. Yeah. I, what is, so? Uh, yeah. So you know, alternate routes is the podcast I do for Osiris, mm-hmm. and the the idea of it is is focusing on music that's not on streaming services yeah. and not you know not available through Spotify, which is you know take some crate digging by you. I mean, you really a little bit, yeah. but there's also I guess for me it's there's a, I mean, there's probably a little bit of a, a didactic message thing going on which is that Spotify is you know it's a handy utility but I really do want to put across the point that it's really only capturing a fraction of the music that that that's out there and that to make that your sole source of learning about music and your sole source of exploring music is to really cut yourself off from be limiting yeah. music you know and Alternate Roots is just sort of showing that there's, you know, there's live recordings, there's, you know, bands have these independent band camps, and that, you know, Spotify to me is the equivalent of, like, you know, it's the mainstream record industry at this yeah. point. It's, yep. it's the mainstream. It's, you know, and the idea of independent and alternative music becomes very different when all music kind of goes through the same platform and everything looks the same and everything feels the same and everything is like, oh, yep, it's the album, it's got the black border, mm-hmm. it's all the same type fonts. Mm-hmm. And I really just want to get this across that there's this, you know, huge eclectic world out there. You know, it's a pretty obvious message, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not not, not maybe, to everybody. And I think maybe it's a service to all these, these these underground artists and just to how much is out there. Yeah. It's, it's, I find it mind-blowing. You've put me on. I mean, when I heard the Sun Watchers, No oh. Fears, I was like, my God. And uh, uh, I love that you got the um, Oneida with uh, Lee Ronaldo on there. Garcia's and James people. McNew. <laughs> and James McNew. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> totally. James from Yola Tango. Um, <laughs> Just there's so much to explore, and that's just such a cool. Awesome! Cool I'm podcast. so glad it's so glad it's connecting. Yeah, but yeah. Um, you know, I, in some ways, it's an extension of I do a weekly radio show on WFMU yep. here. In, is that when is that? I want to. It's late night Mondays, okay, midnight cool. midnight to three a.m. Um, technically early Tuesday morning. So those right. are also all streamable, not podcast streamable. Yeah, streamable, but it's but out list, there. Yeah. Right. Um, and and I I guess to tie it back to the Weavers in some ways. Um. Spotify, you know, Spotify is Spotify, but it's very corporate. You know, it's yeah. not like you don't feel a human connection when or I I don't use Spotify, but the times I have, I definitely don't feel a, a human connection in the same way that I do when I pick up a physical product that's like an LP that somebody has designed, or even a CD. You mm-hmm. know, there's like... Mm-hmm. And to me, bypassing streaming services and just sort of like looking for music directly is, is a way of sort of trying to find that sort of equal connection, like looking for the heads and, or whatever, or trying to, you know, I, I guess bypass this big corporate morass and, and yeah. sort of try to find culture that's a little bit more personal or one, not one-to-one, but just a little more ground level and a little, I don't know, it feels more real to me. It's real? Oh, so I was going to use the word real. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but yeah, but thank you for listening. No, I'm definitely. Appreciate it. Thank you for talking to me. I love, I love the book. Uh, I appreciate it, Jesse. Thanks. Cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. I ring the night
learned this song, Irene, from a friend of ours. His name was Hudie Ledbetter. He called himself Leadbelly, king of the 12-string guitar. Some people thought he was the greatest folk singer that ever lived in America. We knew him best as a rememberer of folk songs, and he taught us dozens of them, especially Irene. This was his theme song, and he sang it for over 30 years before he died. Well, he died before Irene got to be known to so many millions of Americans. Hudy had a hard and wonderful life. It's over now, but his songs are still very much alive. Good night, Irene. Good night, Irene. I'll see you in my dream. Last Saturday night, I got married. Me and my wife settled down. Now me and my wife are parting. I'm gonna take another stroll downtown. podcast is in the loop the legion of osiris podcasts osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love get in the loop at osirispod.com